You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. the scripture. Jesus himself said, I did not come into the world to be served, but to serve. He loves you the same way. Same exact way that he loved these disciples. He loves you. Can you imagine the look on their faces? Can you imagine the looks on their faces when they saw him doing that? Many of us could scarce imagine going before a magistrate or even a king only for them to stoop down and wash our feet. Well, this is exactly what Jesus did for his disciples shortly before being crucified. In today's message, Pastor Dave reflects on the love that Christ had for his disciples and how he has that same love for you. Now, here's Pastor Dave in the book of John chapter 13 as he continues his message, The Sovereign Servant. So here we have the creator of the entire universe who humbles himself as a man and subjects himself to his own creation. The exalted king becomes the servant. The exalted king takes a position of lowliness and humbles himself before those he created. He humbles himself before those whom he loves. This is an extreme act demonstrated by an extreme act of servanthood. This extreme act of love is demonstrated now by an extreme act of servanthood. Jesus' love transcends all barriers of class structure. It transcends all barriers of class structures. The phrase, knowing that he came from God, tells us that Jesus was well aware of his divine origin and knowing where he was going. And Jesus tells us he's well aware of his divinity. He knows who he is. But he humbles himself. He humbles himself. He condescends to minister and to serve those who are infinitely inferior to him. He serves those who are infinitely inferior to him. One commentator I studied said this, quote, Divine love leaped over the boundaries of class distinction and made the Lord of glory the servant of men, unquote. So once again, Jesus now demonstrates his vast love for his disciples. And he gives them an example by which they should live. And he's giving us an example by which we should live also. Jesus' love is an active love. Jesus' love is not a passive love. Jesus' words are followed by action. He is an active participant in this love story. He doesn't just say, yeah, I love you. No, his actions prove that he loves them. His actions prove that he is a lover of men. Jesus demonstrates his love by his actions. How many times do we say, oh, yeah, I love this person or I love that person? But what do our actions say? What do our actions say? Our actions say a lot about you. 
They really do. They say an awful lot about you. Are you just mouthing off, oh, I love them? Because that's what you think they want to hear? Or you think that's what God wants to hear? You don't think God knows your heart? Where's the action in that? Oh, I love you. You know, James says, well, you'll see somebody on the street, and you can help them. You have the means to help them, and you cross over and go, pray for you, brother. Where's the action in that? Jesus' love is action. It's activated by love. It's activated by action. He puts words with action behind it. Would you be willing to be a servant? Would you be willing to serve someone inferior to you? Let's look at Jesus' response. Rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which with he was girded. Now, it's believed that the upper room was in someone's house. It's believed that this was someone's house and there was an upper room that they obtained. And you can go look at the other Gospels that said Peter and John were sent on a mission to get the upper room. They found this room and they accured it or procured it for the Passover dinner. In someone's house in those days, it was extremely customary, almost demanded, that when you entered into the house, the first thing that was going to happen to you was the lowest of all slaves would come to your feet with a basin and wash your feet. That was the custom in those days. They wore sandals or no shoes at all. They were filthy, dirty, stinky feet that the lowest of low servant washed. That was their job. That was what they were given. Since the meeting was probably in secret, there was no slave there to wash their feet when they entered. The disciples, when they were coming in, were too busy going, I'm the greatest. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. That's all they cared about. They were thinking and arguing amongst them. I'm the greatest. They didn't even notice there was nobody there to wash their feet. But when they did I'm sure none of them volunteered. I'm not going to wash your feet. No way. I'm not going to wash your feet. No. Beneath me to wash your feet. But Jesus saw it differently. And he humbled himself, taking on a job of a servant, taking on a job of a slave. Look at the action verbs that he used here. He rose up from the table. He laid aside his garments. By the way, the garment he laid aside are going to be the same garments that a few hours from now they're going to be tossing dice for to get. These very garments that he lays aside. And he girded himself, which simply means he wrapped a towel around himself. He pours water into a basin. Look at all this action. And the disciples are sitting there looking at it. And they're probably going... What is he doing? What is he doing? Now, later on in this part series, we're going to talk about the seating arrangement of the Last Supper. Let me tell you right now, it wasn't one long table where they all sat on one side and posed for the camera. It wasn't that way. I can tell you that right now. But we're going to talk about the seating arrangement and how they were seated according to certain things. But they were there looking like, what is he doing? Well, what's going on? They were too busy looking at him. But Jesus looks at his disciples. He hears their bickering. 
He sees their argument. They're constantly trying to one-up each other, but yet he continues to humble himself. And he goes up to them, and he starts to wash their feet. He knew them better than they knew themselves. He could have said, why aren't you serving me? Jesus was God. Jesus is God. He could have said, I should be served. But you know the scripture. Jesus himself said, I did not come into the world to be served, but to serve. He loves you the same way. The same exact way that he loved these disciples. He loves you. Can you imagine the look on their faces? Can you imagine the looks on their faces when they saw him doing that? Uh, we're going to read next week that Peter has something to say. But did the other one say anything? Master, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? You're on your hands and knees before me. You have my smelly, dirty feet in your hand, and you have a bucket, and you're washing them. Master, what are you doing? He stoops down and begins to wash their feet. Wash their feet. He dries them with the towel. In a matter of days, there were two examples of incredible foot washing. Remember the dinner at Bethany? Remember the dinner at Bethany when Mary poured the spikenard on his feet and wiped it with his hair in total submission to the master? And now here's Jesus. Here's the creator of the universe, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, stooping before man. Stooping before common, simple man. Hearing their bickering, hearing their quarreling, hearing their constant, I'm greater than you. Who do you think you are? And yet he washes their feet. The shock that was on their face. Love took the initiative that day. Jesus was empowered by love. Jesus is the epitome of love. He's the epitome of what love is. This love took the initiative. None of the disciples would dare to wash each other's feet. But the sovereign servant, the master, the teacher, the truly greatest one in the entire room, took the lowest position in the room and washed the disciples' feet and dried them with a towel. Jesus wrapped himself in humanity. He was divine in human flesh. He was God, still God, totally God. But yet he wrapped himself in humanity. He was indeed like us, but he's without sin. And he did this. He humbled himself before the disciples as an example for them to follow. As an example that they would do. What an unforgettable lesson in humility. I mean, if a story like this doesn't do something within your heart, I don't know what to tell you. If a story like this doesn't strike a chord within your deep heart recesses, I don't know what to tell you. This is only recorded in the Gospel of John. You won't find it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You will not find it there. But remember John's purpose, so that you would know that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you would have life everlasting. Let me throw something else at you. Judas hadn't left the room yet. Judas was still at the table. Judas, 
the one who would betray Jesus Christ, the one who would sell him for 30 pieces of silver to the Pharisees and betray him with a kiss just a mere hour or two later. Judas was still there, and Judas's feet were washed just like the other disciples. Ponder on that a while. Jesus knew who it was. He's going to say in the, next, in the next study, in the next reading, one of you is a betrayer. One of you is against me. Judas was still there. Think about this scene. It's the most profound scene, I think, in the Bible, or one of them. It becomes an illustration of what the Apostle Paul would write years later to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 16. It's the epitome of what the Apostle Paul would write about Jesus. Who thought it not equal to be thought it not robbery to be equal with God, who, who humbled himself and became a man. Who, who, all those things that Paul writes in that chapter. Read it, chapter 2, 1 through 16. It's called holy ground. It's called when you read those chapters, you feel like you're standing on holy ground and you're reading something so profound, so holy. But you mix it here and it makes perfect sense. The Father put everything into Jesus' hands, and yet. Jesus picked up a towel and became a servant. One commentator said this, His humility was not born in poverty, but of riches. Look what Paul writes to the Corinthians in the second letter to the Corinthians. In verse 8, Paul says this, beginning in verse uh, 8 of chapter 8, I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Jesus is the eternal God. He was before all things. He was exalted and worshipped by angels. Yet he left all that glory. He left all that riches and came to earth to redeem you and me. To redeem a lost world. To redeem mankind. And to save them from the consequences of their sin. It was for your sake and my sake that he became poor. And because he loved you and was not willing to see you perish. It's God's perfect will that none should perish but all would come to repentance. You were the joy that was set before him. You were the joy because as he went to the cross he thought of you. He thought of you. And he endured the cross. He despised the shame. He didn't have to do it. When Peter pulled out his sword and cut off Malchus's ear, that could have been a big moment. They could have had a huge fight. Jesus could have commanded legions of angels to come down and wipe them out. He chose not to. Again, humbling himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 declares that he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God through him all because of his unending grace. The Gospel of John is continually revealed to us the humility of Jesus Christ, continually poured out about it, while even magnifying his deity. In John 5, 19, Jesus says, For I came down from heaven not to do my will. In John 6, 38, he said, My doctrine is not mine. In John 7, 16, I seek not my own glory. In John 8, 50, the word which you hear is not mine. Jesus always humbled himself to the work of the Father. Always gave glory to the Father. Never took credit for anything that he did. 
Jesus' ultimate expression of humility was his death on a cross. Humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Where does this true humility come from? True humility comes and grows out of the relationship with the Father. True humility comes from a relationship with the Father. If our desire is to know the Father's will so we might glorify his name, then we must follow Jesus' example and serve others in love. And that's what Jesus is showing us here. Not from the flesh, not of works, but out of love. What is the motivation that you serve? Why are you serving others? Is it to get the pat on the back? Is it to have your name on a plaque? Is it for you to be lifted up? For you to be exalted? For you to be admired? For you to be the one they point to? No, I hope not. We serve because Christ has loved us so much, gave us everything he had, and we want to try to give back. I serve because of the love he's shown me. I serve because he's loved me so much and forgiven me for my sins. And what he's done in my life is nothing more than miraculous. So I serve him. I serve him by serving you. Why do you serve? It's the ultimate expression. Jesus indeed was the sovereign, but he took the place of a servant. He was Lord and master, but he served his followers. You see this common picture that's being painted for us. Someone once said that true humility is not thinking mainly of yourself. It's thinking not of yourself at all. How many times does Paul says, esteem others better than yourself? Look out for your own interests, but others as well. Be others-centered. This thing we pass around from time to time. Sometimes I think it's just words. Jesus was far more than an example to the disciples, and they needed more of an example. Yet, Jesus certainly was an example to those who would follow him. They must take him as an example for both attitude and action. Listen to this, one commentator. There are too many of us who profess to be quite willing to trust in Jesus Christ as the cleanser of our souls who are not nearly so willing to accept his example for the pattern of our lives, unquote. Many of us are all about grace, all about mercy, all about forgiveness when it comes to us. Might be difficult for you, though, but for me, it's great. When I think of the disciples that night, arguing about who is the greatest, I see us. We're just like them. We are just like them. Unfortunately, the church as a whole is a very worldly spirit of competition and criticism as we believers who strive with each other to sue sees the greatest. We have the greatest church. We have the greatest pastor. We have the greatest worship team. We have the greatest youth leaders. We have the greatest, we're always, we're greatest. Nobody wants to be number two. We're number one. There's a competition between everybody. How many times have I stood here and I've mouthed these words, I'm not in competition with anybody, nor do I want to be. God designed many churches to fit many people's needs. Praise God. As long as they're teaching the true word of God, I don't care. I care how many people fill their parking lot. But yet, every time I see somebody, Mark can attest to this, every time I see another pastor or somebody from my, wow, your parking lot's really full. Who's keeping score? Obviously, you are. 
I got news for you. This message would be preached today if there was three of you here. Because it's the word of God and it needs to be taught. Why is this happening today? Why is this happening today? Because I believe what someone said, the church, the church today is growing in knowledge, but not in grace. What did Peter say? Grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. If you're growing in grace, you're going to grow in knowledge. You can grow in knowledge without grace. And it'll show in your life. Andrew Murray said this, quote, the lack of humility is the sufficient explanation for every defect and failure. Jesus served his disciples because of his humility and his love. In the upper room that night, Jesus became the sovereign servant. He ministered to his disciples in love and in humility because that is who he is. And it's all grace. And he loved them to the very end. He loved them to the end. Our sovereign God became the sovereign servant. What can we learn from this? What can we take this example and then apply it to our lives? You need to take what's being said here and apply it to your life. It might mean different to you than it means to me. God's word is a personal word to each one of us, and he's speaking loudly today, not just because I have a loud voice and a microphone. He's speaking volumes today to you, church, to his children. He's speaking volumes. What are you hearing? If you're sitting there and you're hearing Charlie Brown's teacher, wah, 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 you're in trouble. You're in trouble, folks. But if you're hearing God speaking to your heart, if the Holy Spirit is doing something within your heart right now, then listen to what the Spirit wants to say to you. Listen to what He's directing you in, how He's trying to change you, what He's trying to do in your life. Listen. And then after you've accepted it by faith, put it to action. Put it in action. And that's what I see here. And that's what I see through this whole chapter 13, a glorious, beautiful chapter. There are some nuggets in here that are incredibly great, incredibly good that we can continue to learn from and glean from to make us even live better Christian lives. I don't think you wouldn't be here if you didn't want to live the Christian life better. If you're here because of some ritual or something, well, then we need to talk. We need to talk. Jesus humbled himself. The creator became the servant. The far superior became the inferior. And he touched the hearts of the disciples. And yeah, they had a long way to go. And Peter's going to say a few things to the Lord that he's going to regret terribly. But then Peter changed. His life changes. And things happen after Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes. Brothers and sisters, my friends, Jesus is speaking loudly today to our lives. You are our time with you is coming to an end today on A Sure Hope. On our next edition, Pastor Dave Shank will continue this journey through the book of John. But for now, you can listen to more teachings from this series online at assurehoperadio.com. 
We encourage you to download these messages so that they are available wherever you go. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Just search for A Sure Hope and see the latest editions as soon as they're posted. If you're enjoying these teachings and would like to get more involved with the church behind this ministry, we'd love to meet you at Calvary Chapel Cape May for a time of worship and Bible study. We meet weekly on Sundays at 10 a.m. Give us a call for more information. Our number is 609-884-5821. Again, that's 609-884-5821. Otherwise, you can visit Assure Hope Radio for times and directions. If you're not able to join us in person, we're streaming our services on Facebook Live. Just look for the link on our website at assurehoperadio.com. Thanks for listening to today's message in the book of John. We pray you continue to be blessed as you study the Word and that you discover how God's doing great things in your life. We look forward to you joining us again as Pastor Dave has more to share from this book that entails where Jesus walked and the amazing wonders he performed while here on earth. He's still doing wonders today too. Come hear about that next time on A Sure Hope.